Now, we're going to turn to our Bibles. And if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Exodus chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible, there's some at both sides there. Uh, they're around the transepts at the front and uh, easily accessible. So if you need a Bible, go and grab one. And we're going to be reading together from Exodus chapter 21. We're delighted this evening uh, to welcome back John Gemmel to be preaching to us this week and next week. John, as you know, is the director of the Cornhill Training Course. It's always good to have John with us, and you're very welcome indeed. And uh, lovely also to have some of John's family here with us uh, this evening as well. But here we are in the book of Exodus, and a section uh, titled in our Bibles, Laws About Slaves. So we're going to read verses 1 to 11 uh, of Exodus chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I won't go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. She doesn't please her master, who's designated her for himself. Then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he's broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. Amen. And may God bless his word to us and help us understand what he has for us to learn. I wonder how you felt as Willie read those 11 verses of Exodus chapter 21. Maybe you felt a bit confused why uh, in God's word there is these laws about slaves. Maybe you felt embarrassed. Maybe you just felt appalled. Why does this book have these laws? So why don't we ask for God's help and we'll see what God might be saying to us through Exodus 21 this evening. Father God, we're gathered in the name of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So Lord God, in this time together, by your grace, remind us of these things and send us out as those who are zealous to do good works. We pray this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself to redeem us and purify us. Amen. 
On the 7th of June, 2020, hundreds of demonstrators unceremoniously toppled the statue of Edward Colston. They then rolled his bronze effigy down Anchor Road and pushed it off a bridge into Bristol Harbour. This act triggered in response to the heinous murder of George Floyd some two weeks prior. However, the toppling of Edward Colston was only the start. And suddenly any statue on any plinth in any location was put under surveillance to prevent its destruction at the hands of the mob. And this was just the start of historical reductionism. Since then, the censorial mafia have turned their attention to libraries, to university campuses, to art galleries, in fact, to pretty much every cultural institution. Roald Dahl, William Shakespeare, Rex Whistler, Winston Churchill, Poet Laureate Ted Hughes, Enid Blyton and Rudyard Kipling, to name but a few. These have all found themselves in the crosshairs of the freshly formed belligerent thought police as they have sought to rainbow wash all of history. It is clear that iconoclasm, underpinned by the metastasizing influence of critical race theory, is the response that everyone has opted for. It is these things that will right these wrongs. And no wonder this is the chosen response. It is much easier to topple statues, burn books, and insist upon apologies in virtue signaling self-righteousness than it is to positively and cooperatively seek to address the many similar atrocities in our contemporary world head on. The terrifying truth, friends, is that slavery is far more endemic across endemic across the world today than it was at the height of the transatlantic slave trade in the 18th century. At its height, there were around 3,000 slave owners in the United Kingdom. Today, this very evening, there are 800,000 slaves in the country of Niger alone. Hundreds of slaves are traded openly in marketplaces each week in Algeria. China, in the recent past, has enslaved two million Uyghur Muslims and put them in forced labor camps to do hard labor. In Rajasthan, in northern India, there is the subjugated caste of the Badea, where every Badea daughter is sold into prostitution by their male family members. In the minds of the Democratic Republic of Congo, young men are far forced to mine deep underground in the most appalling conditions to find precious metals for multinational corporations. And on their best day, they'll earn $2. And their life expectancy will be shortened to just 24. Today, Sunday the 30th of July 2023, there are millions of slaves 
being degraded, dishonored, and commercialized through sex trafficking, labor trafficking, organ trafficking, and debt bondage around the world. And all the statistics say that it is getting worse. In his book, Modern Slavery, Siddharth Kara writes that the, at the most conservative estimates of those that meet a very strict definition of what slavery is, there are 31.8 million persons enslaved. And yet, abolishing slavery is something that Christians in the past have fought passionately for and worked tirelessly towards. On Tuesday, the 12th of May, 1789, William Wilberforce arose in the House of Commons and said, I must speak of the transit of the slaves in the West Indies. This, I confess, in my opinion, is the most wretched part of the whole awful subject. So much misery condensed into so little room is more than the human imagination can ever conceive. And thus started an 18-year struggle before in 1807 the transatlantic slave trade was finally abolished. And today, 234 years later, for millions across our world, their plight continues to be one of unimaginable misery condensed into the lives of defenseless individuals dehumanized as slaves. And so with all that said, let's turn back to Exodus 21 to see how at a key moment in Israel's history, God wanted to reshape slavery amidst his covenant people. I hope to show you how refreshing and reassuring it is to hear how God revolutionizes slavery within his good laws given to his people at Sinai. The big message, I think, is God's people must reflect their redemption through their care and compassion towards all others. God's people must reflect their redemption through their care and compassion towards all others. You see, of all the peoples on the earth, the Hebrews, more than anyone else, knew the unimaginable misery of being a slave. This people had come to Egypt for safety, security, and prosperity, according to the sovereign plan of God through the dramatic events in the life of Joseph. However, 400 years later, they'd become an utterly enslaved people, an enslaved minority under the heel of cruel Egyptian slave masters and utterly subservient to the merciless and paranoid Pharaoh. At the beginning of Exodus, they're forced to do greater and greater amounts of work with fewer and fewer materials. The life of a Hebrew in Egypt was relentlessly brutal, beaten with impunity, risking death in oppressive heat as they labored, exhausted every waking hour. The Egyptian nation enacts infanticide against them and says every Hebrew boy born must be thrown in the Nile to die like trash. This people, 
whom God gives these laws at this time in their recent history had known unprecedented times of tyranny, oppression and pain. These people, through their experience, were experts in what it meant to be a slave. They were a nation of slaves. Yet in Exodus chapter 2, God had responded redemptively to their cry for rescue. And as the story of Exodus unfolds, God rescues his people in order that everyone would know that he is the sovereign Lord and he is on the side of his people. He gets them out. He frees them. Bondage is in the rear view. They cross the Red Sea, and on the other side of the Red Sea, God provides everything for them. He takes care of them in wilderness places and sustains them against all of the odds. And then they get to Sinai, where God cuts his covenant with his people, committing himself to them eternally. And giving them good laws that they are to live out to display his goodness to the watching world. And then that final astonishing movement in Exodus. The bit we all struggle with, the bit that reads more like an Ikea catalogue than it does a portion of God's words. Where God instructs Moses to build a tent where he himself will come and dwell in their midst. That terrifying God on top of the mountain, shrouded in cloud, with lightning and thunder and earthquake and a trumpet that just gets louder and louder and louder, that God says he's moving into the neighborhood. An unimaginable blessing for his people. If you want a summary verse for the whole book of Exodus, then Exodus 29 verse 46 is a great place to go. Moses says this, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God rescues them in order that he can be with them. And so we get into our bit in Exodus 21. In Exodus 20, before the confirmation of the covenant in Exodus 24, God gives the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, to his people. These 10 big building blocks that are to make his people a holy nation. And then from Exodus 21 to Exodus 23, we get the book of the covenant, where one of the big things that God is doing is fleshing out what these 10 commandments are to look like in everyday life. And so this whole thing starts in Exodus 21, verse 1. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. That word rules, mispatim, like case law. So this evening we're studying case law. If that doesn't get you going on a Sunday evening, I'm not quite sure what will. And I don't think it is any accident that God leads this portion of case law with this Um, view of slavery that he's saying slavery amongst you will look nothing like the place that you've left God gives good laws to his people with their core message being the protection of the oppressed from the hand 
of the oppressors. God ensuring that the vulnerable and marginalized are cared for within his covenant community. Just cast your eye down a few verses to Exodus 21 verse 16. You see what we think of when we think of slavery is utterly outlawed amongst God's people. It says, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. What we think of slavery, the abducting of people, the carting them across the Atlantic and putting them to work for no money, that is already outlawed by God amongst his people. In fact, it is a capital offense. Three millennia before William Wilberforce ever stood up in Westminster. So I want to look at this passage under two headings. Firstly, to understand how revolutionary these laws are within their context. And then I want to think how revolutionary they are for us when we look at them as a lens to understand the gospel. And so firstly, revolutionary in context. The passage has a pretty straightforward structure. There is a marker for the beginning of this new section of Exodus. Uh, That's verse 1. And then it splits nicely into two sections. One concerning Hebrew male slaves, verses 2 and 6. And then verses 7 to 11, laws concerning Hebrew female slaves. Both sections start um, with the word when and are followed by four sub-clauses which begin with the word if. Now the key to seeing the beauty of these laws is to understand the context into which they were written. These laws, as I said, are written to a people who have been slaves. And they set a charter for what slavery will look like in God's covenant people in the promised land when they get there. It is a radical alternative to the global norm that is all around them. At the time when Moses proclaims these laws in the Sinai wilderness, a millennia and a half before Christ, slavery is everywhere. In the world of the Old Testament, slavery is the norm. All ancient civilizations had slaves. Egyptians, Phoenicians, Libyans, Carthaginians, Nabataeans, Assyrians, Babylonians, Medes, Persians, and everyone else. All had economies built and prospered and propped up by slavery. We're also in the Near East, living in an agrarian subsistence society. You grow your own food, on your own land, and you are only ever one bad harvest away from starvation and death. Your farming labor force is principally your immediate family. And so drought, disease, or difficulty places your whole family in peril, and you run the risk of your name being wiped out in Israel on account of a famine. This is also a society where there are no overdraft facilities, there are no food banks, there's no benefits checks, there's no social welfare, there's no bankruptcy laws. You live hand to mouth in an often hostile climate trying to eke out an existence from the land. 
Even though these laws are for life in the promised land, even there, there is no guarantee of food security going forward. And so you think to yourself, what happens if you have a bad crop because of a drought? Or water gets into your seed over the winter and everything goes moldy and unusable. Or your young goat breaks out of its pen and eats all the young wheat saplings before they have a chance to grow. What happens if that kind of disaster happens? Well, this is where Exodus 21, 1 to 11 comes in. This, friends, is the safety net option. And this safety net option is that of becoming an indentured slave on your neighbor's land. In exchange for your labor and help, you are given food and lodging. You become a slave, you become a servant to survive. They take care of you, and in exchange, you work for them. It is a safety net servant arrangement. But see how the law is written, verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave. Now this in itself is revolutionary. The onus of doing this law is on the slave master, not the slave. When you buy a Hebrew slave, this is what you're to do. Laws for slave masters in a world where all other slaves have no rights, no protections, and no liberties, in a world where all other slaves are possessions to be used and abused as you so desire, God's people, even if they, are, even if they become slaves, are to be treated with dignity and respect. And the weight and the onus for that is on the owner. That's new. That's revolutionary. See also that the nuance of the way these rules are framed very much sets the idea that these slaves are not to be put out in the bunkhouse and treated like all the other animals, but the real sense is that they're to be grafted into the family units. Not only that, but see it is not a permanent arrangement. He shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. This law prevents generational slavery and permanent poverty. It is a safety net, but it is not a permanent solution. There is freedom here. And after your six years of service, there's a chance to go back to your land and have another go. There's the reset option. You won't be a slave forever. It's written into the law. You'll do six years. And then you get a chance to be free and to go again. Now, even in 21st century Scotland, we have no facility like this. Where people are given a fresh start after a period of time. We have chronic poverty in whole communities in Scotland where people are existing of no real hope of financial freedom 
or being able to escape their plight. God's laws concerning slaves has hope baked into it. Six years, and then you'll go free. Providing for people in the worst times, but guaranteeing the chance to have another go after a short period of time. And then verses 3 and 4 clear up any grey areas. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and children shall be her masters, and then he shall go out alone. It sounds quite harsh, doesn't it? But at least it's clear. You come in single, you go out single. You come in married, you go out married. If during the time of your service, your master gives you a wife, then the wife and any children remain his. There's no suggestion here that the marriage is annulled. She might keep her occupation in her master's house. You can still be married. But at least it's clear for everyone, at least there's no gray areas, that at least if you're in the service of a master who offers you a wife, at least you know the lay of the land. And you can say yes, or you can say no, I'll work it out when I get on the outside. There's no room in God's good laws for the gray areas to be used and abused by the oppressors. It's on the table before the situation ever arises. And then see also verses 5 and 6, and as we read this, it seems absolutely unimaginable. But if the slave plainly says... I love my master, my wife, and my children. I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Could you imagine that? Six years of service to a master. The opportunity to leave and go it alone presents itself. But you say, oh no, I love it here. It's so good working for you. Do you know what? I've just found a massive nail. Let's go to the doorpost. I fancy an ear piercing. It's an incredible situation, isn't it? But it seems to suggest that there was a way of being a slave in a master's house that was the best thing since sliced bread. The best thing since pierced suddenly we see that once we get behind these laws they're beautiful especially against the backdrop of barbarism that was slavery in all other cultures and particularly as they think back to their plight in Egypt when and if we do slavery it will look very different It'll look very different from our experience and the experience of everyone else around the world. Now see verse 7, there are different stipulations for women, for daughters. And again, let us think carefully about this. Imagine the situation that your crop hasn't totally failed. There's some produce, but it's patchy and quite meager. There's some food to sustain you, but not enough for the whole family. What do you do in that instance? Well, on a purely economic level, 
option would be to sell your daughter into slavery. That seems like the last thing we would do. But in that society, it was your one and only option. In general, daughters were not as strong or hardy as sons. And therefore, when it came to labor on the farm, they didn't do as much, but they ate a similar quantity of food. Not only that, but if they were to get married, they would cost you in the form of a dowry. And you look at the bank and you think there's not a lot in there. Her chances of marriage are greatly curtailed. Sons, on the other hand, they would secure you a dowry and they would work hard in the field so you'd probably keep hold of them. So if devastatingly you couldn't feed everyone, the only choice you had was to sell your daughter into slavery to a neighboring family. And let's bear in mind your neighboring family wouldn't be total strangers. They'd be people you'd know. They'd probably be from the same clan as you. They'd certainly be from the same tribe. Let's bear in mind that in these days, marriages were much more a case of family negotiation than they were dating apps. And so this would be as safe as it possibly could be. You were not feeding them to the wolves, you were grafting them into a family that you trusted and you knew that they would be looked after. This would guarantee their future and their welfare and their protection. See also that there is a high expectation that the daughter you give away would be formally grafted into the family in the form of marriage. In this marriage, there's real protection. She can't be sold on. If you marry her, you're really married to her, and that comes with profound responsibilities. She's not an object to be traded. If things don't work out and you're not pleased with her, then your only option is to sell her back to her family. You can't put her on eBay. There's not that kind of option. These people, these oppressed people, are not commodities to be traded. If he designates her for a son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. She's a fully-fledged member of the household. And if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. She's really protected. In this society, this would be amazing. The expectation is you don't remain a slave. You become a fully-fledged family member. See that there's no um, sixth year in the seventh year you'll go free. That's not an option. This is a patriarchal society. Single women going it alone, it would not go well for them. That's what's so amazing about the audacious faith of Ruth who goes to a field to glean without some um, patriarchal um, overprotection. And see that if not the, the person who takes this um, woman into his house, if he doesn't do everything that he's supposed to, then she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. She can just go home. 
So we start to see there is real purpose and blessing in these laws, creating a safety net for those who fall on hard times. Obviously, in an ideal world, you wouldn't need these laws. There wouldn't be slaves. There wouldn't be poverty. There wouldn't be famine and hardship. But ever since Genesis 3, there is no hope of an ideal world. As creatures living in a fallen world where thorns and thistles impinge on the land as creation bites back, where sweaty brows are the payment to produce bread, these laws are absolutely necessary in demanding that all of God's people are looked after. It is part of the sovereign care he shows to all his people. And the impetus is that God's people must reflect their own redemption through their care and compassion towards all others. These laws were revolutionary for them. No other nation had a charter like this, protecting the vulnerable and the marginalized, stopping the oppressed becoming more oppressed, and stopping the impoverished becoming subservient forever. The people around saw this slavery, they would go, well, that's very different. That's a very odd way to run your society. And so you think that is all well and good. We have a proto-ground for a welfare state. Yippee! But what on earth does that have to do with me? Well, a surprising amount, I have to say. Because I think Exodus 21 also serves as a wonderful lens to give us a marvelous vista of the gospel. These laws were revolutionary then, but I think as we see them and the difference the Lord Jesus makes, they're very revolutionary through our Lord Jesus. These verses give us a window onto a much bigger story. You see, the result of the fall is that slave is not just an identical for a subset of humanity, but the Bible is very clear that in and of ourselves we are all slaves. Through our failings and our falling short, we each naturally are enslaved. Enslaved to our sin, enslaved to Satan, enslaved to the fear of death. We are powerless and helpless to free ourselves. We were born slaves. Without somebody rescuing us, we will die slaves. It doesn't matter how hard we work, how much good we do, or how much effort we exert, the shackles of slavery can never be loosed by us. We are desperate, generational slaves with our taskmasters cruelly oppressing us, the taskmasters of sin and Satan and death. We are powerless not to serve them. We are powerless to escape from them. We are powerless to free ourselves. And so we too are those in need of redemption. And what Jesus has done for us on the cross is even more remarkable than the ritual laid out for us in Exodus chapter 21 verse 5. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 5, there is this ritual where a slave loves serving his master, and so he gets his ear pierced with an awl. In the gospel, we have the master of all who became a slave. 
in order to serve slaves so they might be free forever. We have one who was the master of everything, who became nothing so that we who had nothing could get everything. And let's bear in mind the ritual he underwent was remarkably more brutal than a big iron nail through your ear. He got cruel nails through his hands and his feet. As he was nailed to a cross, as the abject sign of how much he was serving you and how much he was serving me. The master who became a slave of all of us so that all of us might be freed from our slavery. That is an astonishing thing. And he says exactly the same thing. I love my father. I love my people. I love my children. I'm going to serve them forever. So they need not be slaves anymore. This Jesus who did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This Jesus who serves us forever through his death and means that we are freed never to be enslaved again. This Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us, who redeemed us and frees us and grafts us into his family. Not as underlings, but as brothers and sisters with full family rights, with real citizenship and eternal hope. It's captured so beautifully in this hymn, Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim, hallelujah, what a saviour. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a saviour. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless Lamb of God was he sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah. What a saviour. The remarkable law of Exodus 21 points us to a much bigger story of a master who became a slave. So all slaves might have hope forever. So how should we respond to Exodus chapter 21? Well, here's some thoughts. Firstly, keep being served. As former slaves freed in Christ, we can never stop being thankful for the one who loved us and freed us. If you've ever seen that film or read the book 12 Years a Slave, the story of Solomon Northrup, his experience at the end of the film where he does not say thank you to those who found him and rescued him. That should be our lives. We were hopeless, helpless, enslaved and in bondage. And Jesus has been so kind to us in serving us forever through his death. Also keep being free. We're not to be slaves anymore. It would be very weird for a freed slave to spend every night crawling back into the bunkhouse to relive his former life. So sin 
and Satan and death have no hold on us. And therefore we're those that are to keep living out this freedom, to keep saying no to former ways of life and former patterns of behavior, and to know that this Jesus really has freed us. And if he's freed us, we can surely be free indeed. I think thirdly, keep being compassionate. I mean, I think it's really aspirational, isn't it? To have people working with you and for you who when they're offered opportunities to move on say, not a chance. I love working for you. It's the best. You treat us with dignity and respect. You look after us. You're on our side. We're not going anywhere. We want to work for you forever. Just imagine if you were an employee like that. I wonder if there really would be gospel opportunities in the office plenty. And then fourthly, keep championing emancipation. The real emphasis of Exodus 21 is that we're to reflect redemption in our everyday lives. It's just like Wilberforce, be those that keep talking about freedom and keep talking to people in such need of it. There's some very simple things I think we can do. Being conscientious consumers. To not just turning a blind eye to where our things come from. But to make sure that the things that we buy and how we spend our money is done in a safe and sensible way that isn't adding to the misery of others. Just making sure that the prices we're paying the cost isn't being transferred to somebody else who can't afford to pay it. One of the biggest enslaving industries in our world today is the sex industry. Internet pornography is a massive global problem. And it's a demand-driven enterprise. So one of the things you can do this day is to stop watching and to stop being engaged so that the supply dries up. And those that are so enslaved will suddenly have the hope of not having to be engaged in such dehumanizing behavior anymore. Thirdly, advocating. Being those who speak up for freedom amidst the frenzy that is sweeping across the nation, of blaming people and asking for apologies, of those that are speaking so um, reductionistically in the current conversations. Let's be those who say truthful things and helpful things to others. I cannot think of anything more oppressive than people in actual enslaved conditions today hearing of tertiary-educated Western people enjoying all freedoms and yet claiming to be an oppressed minority. If you're somebody wearing a designer brand claiming to be an oppressed minority and the people who are making that stuff in sweatshops in South Asia hear that, I mean, it would be ridiculous if it wasn't so perverse. So let's be those not engaged in cheap talk, competitive victimhood, but let's be those who are seeking to always make real change in the lives of people that know nothing but bondage and slavery 
and hopelessness. And to finish, the one thing we've got that nobody else does is the answer to eternal freedom from slavery forever. We must be those that are engaged in proclamation. Nobody else in Glasgow today has the answer to eternal bondage except people who are talking about Jesus and pointing people to him. As Christians, we must be absolutely passionate about about alleviating all suffering. But most especially, we must be most passionate about alleviating eternal suffering. And let's be clear, eternal emancipation only comes through proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ, the master who became a slave, to serve all slaves eternally in order that they might be free and his forever. Why don't we pray together? Father God, help us fathom again this profound and glorious truth that the Lord of all became the slave of all to free us all and forgive us all. Help this glorious, grace-filled truth transform us from the inside out and make us people zealous to do good works as we reflect our redemption through our care and compassion towards all others. Father God, help us to stick out like healthy thumbs in a way that brings glory and honor to your Son, our Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.